Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of James Talks. Really great to have you all here with me today and um, I'm really excited today because we've got um, Alexander Shire back with us again. Um, welcome back Alexander, great to um, be talking to you again. It's an honour James, delighted. Um, yeah, it's always great having you here. Um, Thank so, you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, those of you who listened um, regularly will know that we had Alexander on first time uh, in March or something like that. And then we did a series on the gospel journey with him um, in June, July. Um, and now, um, we, when we were talking about this afterwards, we thought that wouldn't it be great if we could get listeners' questions for Alexander to, to, to answer? Um, so that we could get feedback from you and see what you wanted to hear from Alexander. And um, so that's what we did, and asked, put the message out there, and we got a few questions back. We've got, um, we've got some um, listeners' questions to ask today. So that's what we're doing today, and it's going to be exciting. Um, I'm looking forward to it, and so is Alexander, I hope. Um, <laughs> um, this is the first time I've done this sort of a format, so I'm, it's interesting and exciting. And I'm a little nervous. Yeah, yeah, because it's a bit more, a bit less structured, you know. Um, yeah, a lot more room to breathe in this one. So, um, yeah, it's going to be good. So, okay, um, I'm going to start with a question from someone who um, I can't, I couldn't grab their name, but somebody who's on your Facebook group um, who asked, what's your favourite gospel and your favourite passage from the four Gospels, and why? It's a great question. And I do often feel like a parent who loves all of his children uh, in a different way. And as I worked on each of the four texts, I would fall in love with it all over again. Mm. And um, the Gospel of John is the one that there's something about that text that's uh, a mystery that just keeps drawing me further in and further in. And I spent a year trying to write the chapter on the Gospel of John in the book Heart and Mind. Um, and my and there's just there's something in that gospel that's so um, unfathomable, and it, it it's like this this incredible. Gordian knot that you can't ever fully unravel, and I, I love it because it, it's 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 just keeps drawing me ever deeper. So uh, you get the sense that that John is I don't know favorite, but but it's the one that I just it just keeps working on me. Hmm. John's John's probably my favorite gospel as well. Um, lots of different reasons. Oh. I mean, I, I, um, I love the way it's written. I love the way that it's put together, that it's structured, and and also what we talked about in our, you know, in our um, recording when we talked about John, that just made it even more so a gospel that I could resonate with and connect with. You know, um, yeah, it's definitely yeah. one of my favourites. Yeah, and I, I just learned and I'm always learning and and I just learned a new detail this week um, about the city of Ephesus and it adds another 
layer to the text of this gospel if Ephesus is the place that it was composed. Um, this gospel is a phenomenal text of oneness. And the English translations that we have today are very poor translations uh, to the Aramaic understanding of the Christ that's underneath and in, that infuses this text. But the thing I learned this week is, is that uh, I've always known that Ephesus was an affluent city. It was a capital city. It was a diverse city. And I always thought that its economy and its affluence came by the fact that it was a place of government. But no. Ephesus was the center of the slave trade for the Roman Empire. Right. And so this phenomenal text of oneness was going up against the economy of Ephesus, which was built on the slave trade and treating slaves as uh, not even human, as products. And here we have this text that's talking about the Christ being within everything and, with, and within every person. And clearly would have been a revolutionary text to have been heard in the context of Ephesus economy. And Christian followers would have been asked to have been countercultural. Hmm. And, and countercultural in a way that, that really hurts because it's your economy. And yet, um, here we are on the road, and I would never say that, that Christians at this point were advocating the end of slavery. I don't think that we can say that, but we're, we're, we're raising the status of slaves to humans worthy of dignity and respect. Hmm. And that that was absolutely an anathema to the Roman Empire. Wow. See, it's amazing what you find out when you, when you dig into the history and the context of these things. You actually realise the power, you know, the, that they would have had at the time they were written, you know. Um, you know, and they didn't know they were putting the Bible together, you know, at the time. They, you know, there wasn't the Bible. You know, there was the, the Hebrew Scriptures, which was the old, what we call the Old Testament, and so for people to get this get this kind of book and with that kind of message resonating from it, I mean, that's, you know, that's phenomenal. Uh, it is, and it's, it's one of the other things that's so unique about John is it's the first sacred text that we know of written on the planet that's written to all people and all tribes. Now, just think about this in, in terms of, of developmental history. Mm. Up to this point, every sacred text is written about a specific people. Yeah. Uh, this text is written to all people. In fact, you can say in our language today, this text is written as the song of the cosmos. Hmm. And wow. it says the cosmos is our tribe. And to go back 2,000 years ago and to begin at that moment to deconstruct people's sense of ethnic and socioeconomic tribalism into the one human family and then 
the one family of the cosmos. Wow. Mm-hmm. It, it, is, it is an utterly radical text. Yeah. It's fascinating. I just learn so much. <laughs> learn every, learn, learn, every time I talk to you, I learn something new. It's brilliant. Um, fantastic. Um, that makes, that, 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 see, that sort of thing just makes the Bible just so much bigger. You know, than just a religious text. I mean, I say just a religious text, but more than just the book you look at when you go to church or that you do that you read every day when you when you wake up or whatever and do your devotionals. It's something so much bigger than that. Um, so, what was your the other part of the question? What your favourite passage? Uh, my favorite passage is obviously from John, and it's the very first line of the text, um, which we have in utterly poor English. Um, it's, it's poor in every sense, the way it's translated. Now, in the beginning was the word. Uh, true, but let, let's go back to what this text is really saying underneath this poor English. Um, First of all, because we know that the evangelist is conveying an Aramaic experience and has to translate that into the Greek world, and the text was composed in Greek, the first thing to know is the Greek world is the language of Rome, and it's the language of the oppressor. There's nothing about the Greek world that you want to deify. This is not the world of Plato from earlier centuries. The Greek language and the Greek world of the first century is something that must be deconstructed. And so what John has done is he has taken the Greek language and infused it with an Aramaic understanding of the cosmos that deconstructs the Greek. Do not idolize the Greek. So let's go back and look at what this first line of John might look like in the Aramaic expression. First of all, change the tense. It's not in the beginning was the word. Mm. It's in the beginning is the word. Mm. And take it a step further. It's not in the beginning. It is in every beginning. Oh. And and then lastly, we've got to go deeper under this term, the word, which we know in the Greek, um, the term that John used was logos. And I think we talked about this when we talked about John. Logos is is a Hebrew philosophical concept that already had a 300-year history. And logos is is the word that's being used for everythingness. Not word, but logos in the Hebrew, in the Greek Hebrew understanding of the moment. Logos stands for everythingness. Now let's hear this first line. In every beginning is everythingness. (laughs) And everythingness is with God. Oh, wow. In every beginning is everythingness. Oh, my word. That is... 
That is amazing. And oh. we can go a step further and understand that Logos is John's expansion of Paul's use of Christos, the Christ, which is Paul's translation of the Aramaic Messiah. And in English, we say very poorly Messiah. But mm. in Aramaic, it's Messiah. And the meaning of the word in Aramaic is in the bodily expression of the word. And the word ends with the outbreath. Right. And so you can say, you can go back to this line of John. In every beginning is God's outbreathing of everythingness. Wow. That's unbelievable. That changes the whole thing, doesn't it? It, it just makes it so much bigger. Um, yes, and now, and, and, and now we're getting at the radicalness of how the Ephesians and the Greeks would have heard this text. Mm. Because at this point in the Greek world, they don't believe that everythingness is coming forth from spirit, from God. The Greek world is a world where opposites battle each other. And your obligation is to choose one of the opposites over the other. You are to choose free over slave. You are to choose one tribe over another. You are to choose male over female. You are to choose sky over earth. You are to choose light over dark. Everything The Greeks saw everything as a series of competing opposites where one must win and the other must lose. And you are obligated to make a choice and to enter the battle. Wow. Now, we understand how John is presenting through the Christ this Aramaic view that all is one. No more competing opposites. Yeah, no more either or. You know, both hands. No, no, no more either or. Everything is both and. Totally inclusive. It's a matter, it's a matter of, of a recipe. How much of this with how much of that? Amazing. That's... But see, what, what's happened is all of our poor English translators of the text are translating out of a mindset of either or, or duality. And we get a very poor translation of John because we accepted the Greek worldview and didn't understand the Aramaic that's underneath it. Oh, that's incredible. John, John is not saying that light is to win out over dark. John is saying that light and dark live together in right measure. Everything in the universe is a wholeness. It's the Greek world who has this, this fragmented, partial, not helpful understanding that light must defeat dark. And because we've accepted that philosophy into our culture, 
we go back into John and think John is inveighing us that light must defeat dark, and that's totally, totally, totally off the mark so, of what John is doing from an Aramaic understanding. So when it says the light has overcome the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, what is that actually? I mean, <laughs> I've just thought of this while you've been saying but, so right, what, exactly. Well, what is what is John saying? Because it talks about light overcoming darkness, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that? Yeah, I don't know the Bible well enough to know every. We've got some very poor English philosophy and Germanic and Western philosophy. What John is saying is that light and dark live together. Right, which is interesting because I mean. Because I've always, I mean, I'm trying to not be a, I'm trying to be a non-dual thinker and think of the, have the both and perspective, because I think that's the better perspective, you know, and I've read a lot of Richard Rohr and, and, and that's, that's where I've been going. But the kind of thing about darkness and light, because darkness is obviously is like, we talk about, as Christians, we, t- I, we talk about a lot of, we talk about, you know, the devil and we talk about darkness and we talk about evil and sin you know and that's not from god that's from somewhere else that's from not from a place of light but of darkness and that jesus died to defeat that you know so how does this kind of fit with that oh god you're gonna get me all passionate here no i can't Um, wait i really want to hear this (laughs) well we've got at least a thousand years of bad philosophy to heal ourselves from Right. And it's the and it's the philosophy of the West. So right. let's go back to the Aramaic and to Jesus the Christ, this Aramaic teacher in our midst. And let's understand that Aramaic, the Aramaic language in the Aramaic worldview, is that everything fits together in this beautiful mosaic. My favorite Richard War book, Everything Belongs. Oh, I love that book. That's, that's, that's the song of, of the Aramaic language, which was the, the liturgical language of my childhood growing up in the Maronite church. Well, parts of the, the, the Sunday liturgy are still in Aramaic. Um, Aramaic as a worldview is closer to Japan as a worldview than it is to Greece. And this is the thing that we keep forgetting, we Westerners, Mm. um, is that Israel-Palestine is on the continent of Asia, not Europe. And it's an Asian worldview where everything belongs, not the Greek-Western worldview that everything in the world is a series of competing opposites. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. Yeah, I mean, I was so, just, yeah. So um, one of the things that I'm working on is I'm working on a translation of the text of John in English, which is so hard because English is the language which has more words in it than any other language in the history of language. Hmm. Because English is dedicated to discriminating and to breaking things down into its separate parts 
and being very precise in the word that you use to describe this as against that. Mm. Aramaic is a poetic language which is rounded and circular and metaphoric. It's not precise in that way. The Aramaic language is about conveying feeling more than discriminatory thought. Because the Aramaic language says, if you are in the right feeling, then you will have the more proper thoughts. Hmm. And the right feeling is everything belongs. Everything Hmm. is in a, a unique recipe for you of how much this with how much that. The second piece is when we go to the Hebraic Aramaic worldview, darkness only means the place things begin again. There, there's no there's no angst in the Hebrew worldview about darkness. All of that is a bunch of hooey that came a thousand years later uh, from from some very bad philosophical discourse in the West. Right. Darkness is the face of Eve, the earth, the dark earth, the source from which everything starts and starts again. You can say that darkness is the maternal face of God. So what about evil? Um, what well, evil and like sin or whatever you want to call it, you know, because I know that people listening will probably want will probably want to understand this in the context of that, you know. Well, um, let, let's start with the word sin, and let's let's redefine it in terms of a Hebraic Aramaic understanding. And the word sin is translated as missing the mark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the definition. The yeah. You know, and the mark is everything belongs in a right in a right relationship. And sin is when we miss the mark of the right relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. And now, you're going to, the, the, the further question, and I wrestle with this, because I absolutely believe in a principle of evil that stands against God's oneness and the oneness of all. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it was created. I don't know why it exists. I just know it is. Mm. And I wrestle with it, and I read, and I think, and I ponder, and I pray, and I can't figure it out. And I guess at some level I go back to my Aramaic roots. It just is. And I want to respect it. Mm. Um, And, but... My, my prayer and my desire is to go deeper into the sense of everything belongs. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. And, and that evil increases its intensity as we move to either or perspectives rather than both and. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. 
The more we have a both-and culture, the more evil there is, I think. The more conflict you have, the more division you have. Uh, the more either-or culture. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not, not both-and. The more either-or culture we have. Oh, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I always get them mixed up <laughs> when I'm talking about them. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we need uh, we need a both-and culture rather than either-or one. The either-or one brings conflict. Yeah, the both-and one brings unity and uh, inclusion. So, wow, that was just one question. <laughs> that was just the yeah, first I mean, question. Yeah, and you can you can understand why when I get going on John. I mean, this is what John does to me. It just it just John is this mystery upon mystery upon mystery, and it's never going to be resolved. Yeah, um, I'm not going to resolve it. Our our, our best. Thinkers and theologians are never going to resolve it. It's this text which is always ahead of us. There's yeah. always another layer to it. Absolutely. So I love that. Brilliant. All right. Okay, so the next question is what from... Else, uh, what else do you have for me? <laughs> the next question is from a guy called Eddie. Um, Hi, Ed. Um, and... Um, I'll just I'll literally read the question that he I'll read it. So this is quoting from from Eddie. Um, he said, um, "You said at the end of the episode on Matthew that the end of Matthew is not the Great Commission, rather it's an invitation to this life." I'm a bit confused to what you mean by this. I'm not sure if you mean you don't believe in disciple making. As to me, um, to me it seems an invitation and a commission. So what are your thoughts on the issues of discipleship and evangelism? And do you see the end of Matthew as an invitation alone, or an invitation and a commission? Okay, this gets to, and, and it's a great question, and I'm really um, in awe that people are listening this closely, so thank you. Um, this gets to, to my work as a different type of lens on the text. And I don't would not like my work to deconstruct so much of the good work which has been done on these texts for eons. Um, certainly we can look at the end of Matthew's gospel and see a commissioning to discipleship. Hmm. But what I'm doing is I'm saying that in this lens, Matthew is simply the first chapter of a four-chapter journey, mm. and I'm connecting up how Ma how the end of Matthew opens to the text of Mark, and how the end of Mark opens to John, and how the end of John opens to Luke, and how the end of Luke-Acts opens back to Matthew. So, what I what I'm suggesting in the lens that that I'm working on is that. And what I was so stunned by when, when this view um, arrived for me is how this is this internal, eternal journey that all of us walk and that the sending forth at the end of Matthew is likened unto Moses sending us forth from the captivity of Egypt. But where are we going to go, both in the gospel and in the Exodus story? We're going to go 
not to going out to work with others yet. We're going out to a place of inner wildness. The work is the first commission is to my personal transformation. And Luke will pick this up again as a text of the fourth path where Luke talks about unless I am working on my personal transformation, my service and ministry with others is going to be very hampered because I'm going to be subtly forcing upon them what I'm actually trying to give myself. And that's really not the best of ministry. Mm. So we can, we can lift um, this end of Mark, excuse me, this end of Matthew, we can lift it out of the text and just look at the story in itself and as we have for centuries and talk about it as a great commissioning to discipleship. And I can say yes to that. But I think the greater story for me is when we put this back in the context that these four Gospels have a larger story to tell than any one individual gospel. And that therefore we can see how the end of Matthew is not the great commissioning to go out and work with others. It's the great commissioning to go wander in a wilderness and work with myself first. Right. So there is the, so there is definitely that element of commissioning us to to go out and tell people about Jesus and to but but the other but the invitation is do your inner work discover who you are discover what your role can be in doing that right. in a sense and then you so can then many, go do uh, it i mean many 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 others have written about and talked about Matthew as the great commissioning of discipleship in the outer realm let that be there. When you walk into this lens on the text, Matthew is saying to us, when it says, go out to all nations, go to all the places inside yourself, go to all the nations inside yourself and bring the law of love. Everything belongs. Mm. Everything mm. belongs, and we start with everything belongs by going to those places, all of those places, inside ourselves. Yeah. Anything that we reject inside of ourselves, we are likely to foster rejection outside of ourselves. That's good. That's good. <laughs> wow. Good, good stuff. Well, I hope that... Um, that uh, satisfied your question, Eddie. Um, I look forward to hearing what he thinks about that. Um, so, okay, we've got another question. Listen, this was a, this is another one about the Bible, and it's a guy from a guy called Benjamin. Um, he, Hi, um, he was just saying how much he enjoyed. The, Actually, no, no, Benjamin a bit. He's in the United States. Yeah, Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin uh, Postma. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, he says he loved the interviews. 
Um, which is good Um, but he wanted you to explore more about Jesus' words in Luke 12 verse 49 and how it relates to the fourth path Um, I'm going to read Luke 12 verse 49 and then um, I'll let you talk about it Um, Luke 12 49 uh, and this is the NIV UK version I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. That's the I think Jesus that's Jesus saying that. I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Yes. Um, so um he just wants you I think yeah, Ben Benjamin just wanted you to explore that and what it meant for the and how it relates to the fourth path. And I and I don't know if um let just to fill out a little bit for, for those who are listening. Um, just to know that the rest of that passage begins to talk about division. Uh, that from now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. All right, what's this all about? Context, 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 context. And the first context is realizing the original community that the text was composed for. And the second context is realizing that the gospel was placed as the last chapter of the four-part journey. All right, the original context, the original listeners. This text is being composed to the Christian community at the point that Christianity and Judaism are in a horrible, divisive, Mutual divorce. Divisive mutual divorce. And there is nothing so painful as a divorce in the family. And and we've already seen, if you go back to the fourth chapter of Luke, the story of how Jesus goes home to Nazareth and the synagogue and he begins to preach the good news. Right, yep. And and the people in the synagogue become offended. And the text says, and they run Jesus up the hill and their intent is to throw him off the cliff and kill him. Yeah, but Jesus (laughs) simply goes on his way, and this is this is the critical thing to to bring that understanding through so many passages in Luke that we might think initially are harsh. Mm. Jesus is saying, as you begin to live your authentic, original, spirit-filled life, you can probably expect some division around you. Not everyone is going to applaud you. However, go back to Jesus' modeling for us in the fourth chapter. Move through this. Do not engage it. Do not fight it. 
go on your way. Bless them as you go, even bless them in their moment of hostility against you. Do not engage it. I love, I love this, this, I heard a phrase yesterday, radical generosity in the face of hostility. Radical generosity in the face of hostility. Hmm. And that's what I see Jesus doing as he simply passes through them as they have this intent to kill him because they can't receive the message. Yeah. Now, Hmm. the further point I want to make here is that Luke is... The fourth chapter of the one gospel, Luke is coming after the third chapter, and the third chapter is John. And the third chapter is, we have awakened to a deeper gift of God in our life. And And with that awakening comes enlarged responsibility. So, when we come to Luke... And we're going to see in Luke's Beatitudes, unlike Matthew's Beatitudes, Matthew's Beatitudes are written to us when we're starting on the first path of the journey and we need comfort and inspiration. Luke's Beatitudes are written to us past the third path when we've received the new gift or the wider awareness. Okay. And hopefully we're convicted by it. And so now Luke's Beatitudes are not only blessed are you, but equally woe to you. Woe to you if you receive the gift on the third path and you're not using it. Woe to you if you receive the gift and you're not a steward of it. You received a gift and you have a responsibility to it. You have a responsibility to spirit. And woe to you if you are not working with it. Woe to you if you're going and hiding it away or running away from it. For that, you will be held accountable. Hmm. Challenging stuff. It is challenging stuff. And so when we hear, I came to bring a fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, hear that. We received a fire in the third path. And that fire was kindled in us. And it's the unique gift of our life to give away. And if we don't give it away, if we're not a steward of it, and we don't give it away, our vitality, our creativity, our ability for genuine love and forgiveness and justice are going to diminish. Not because God is punishing us, but because there is a fire in us that is burning and we are obligated to steward that fire. Because if we don't steward it, it's either going to consume us or it's going to go out. Yeah. 
Oh wow, that's really really powerful. Good stuff. So what? What's your gift? How are you to give it? And don't let any outer force stop you. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Um, great. Okay, we've still got some more questions. I've got um, a question. <laughs> I've got a couple of questions, but um, we've got another question from another person in a minute. Um, so I'll just ask my first of questions that I've been thinking about. Um, there's, there's, there's events that occur in all four Gospels, like the crucifixion, for example, um, which, you know, they're similar in each Gospel, though they are written for different audiences, obviously, and they're told slightly differently. Um, so how do we... I'm thinking, how do we look at one massive event like that, which is a huge event, both in Scripture itself and in history, um, and we break it down into the four paths, looking at it from from the different perspectives of the different authors and their and the different paths that they, that they represent. I mean, so what, I mean, for example, what does the cross look like in e differently in each path? Um, I'm sitting here, sort of holding myself down because this is. This is, thank you for this question. It's critical. Mm. And we, we've got, just like everything else, as we really come into understanding this lens, we've got to heal ourselves of a lot of what we have seen and prayed and thought and heard in homilies and sermons for eons. This is the problem with, quote-unquote, Holy Week. Um, because we've come out of a 700-year period where we thought that the height of uh, good theology was to do the last seven words of Jesus, which is to throw these four passions into a blender. Stop it. Each of these passions is a unique story, and the differences are not small. They're large, and they're intended to be large. Stop throwing them in the blender and giving us a BBC drama of something that we think happened 2,000 years ago. Not intended. These passions tell us the only core history we need to know from Jerusalem, which is Jesus was put on trial, Jesus was crucified, Jesus died, Jesus rose. That's the core information of each passion. Hmm. The way each passion is told is not to be about that moment in Jerusalem, folks. It's about us. It's about right now and here. It's about you and it's about me. Matthew's passion is about you when you are in a moment of starting a new journey and you understand the sting and the pain of your betrayal. Not about Jerusalem. You. Mark's passion is about you when you're on the journey and you're feeling crushed by the weight of it. You're feeling alone and abandoned and you're crying out in your agony. John's passion is about you when you're in love and your heart is broken open in the wonder of the cosmos and you understand that your life is to bear this, this love 
with the weight of a feather. And Luke's passion is about you on the long, 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 forever long road of service. When you're going to be called to reconcile opposites over and over and over and over again, you're going to be called to reach out to compassion to everyone who asks of you mercy, and you're going to be asked to reach out in holy, kind silence to all of those who scream blasphemies at you. The reason we have four passions is not to tell us the story of Jerusalem. Stop the Holy Week pageant. Stop it. It's yesterday's understanding. Let's move into today's understanding, which is each of these four passions is about a place in our life. And let's only look at what that passion does and says to us when we're reading or we're praying it. Forget the other three. It's not helpful. Wow. Oh, that's really challenging. Um, I mean, I, I love... I mean, look, look in, 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 Matthew's tri- in Matthew's passion, the author brings all the notes of betrayal into this passion because that's what we're feeling on the first path. Hmm. In, in John's passion, first of all, John says, it's not yet Passover, folks. The... The meal where Jesus washes feet is not a Passover meal. Passover hasn't happened yet. Jesus dies before Passover. That's Jesus true. carries the cross himself. That's Jesus true. puts himself on the cross in John's passion. There, there's nothing true. about John's passion that squares with the other three, and that's exactly perfectly right because it's not about Jerusalem. It's about us. It's about an internal, eternal moment, not only a historical moment. The historical moment that's the core of each passion is, yes, Jesus was arrested. Yes, Jesus was put on trial. Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus rose. But now let me tell you what that has to do with your life. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Holy Week, to be perfectly honest. Um... You know, and communion. I love communion. And Good Friday, Good Friday especially. I, you know, I always seem to connect with quite emotionally um, and personally. Um, I don't know why. I just I, I do, and um, I like talking about it. I like praying about it, reflecting about it. You know, remembering it. But, um, but I think, I think the thing I always liked about it is not simply just the historical events. It's it's the meaning behind it and how that speaks to us and our own journey and our own, you know, growth. And but here, but, but James, I'm going to be very critical here, and I don't oh. mean you personally. Okay. But the church has taught you to be schizophrenic. Right. And it's taught all of us to be schizophrenic. Because there is only one passion that we are supposed to read on Good Friday, and it's John's passion. And John's passion has not one note of suffering, no sorrowing, no mm. quibbling. John's passion says, give me the cup, for this I have come. And yet we're, we're reading John's passion, but we're singing songs that are sorrowful. We're covering our churches in black or purple. We're doing all of this agony stuff. It's not John's passion. Now, which is it? 
When we read John's Passion, sing an alleluia. As the great scholars will tell us, in John's Passion, when Jesus dies, it's a prefiguration of Pentecost. If it's not Pentecost itself, because the text in its better translation, at, 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 when Jesus dies in John's Passion, Jesus bows his head and delivers over the Spirit. The Spirit. It goes back to the first line of John's text about God's breathing out in every beginning. Oh, wow, that's amazing, yeah. So when Jesus dies, he breathes... Does, does John say he breathed his last? Or that I... No. The, there, our scholars have gone back and forth, back and forth, about the translation of the Greek word. And because when you come to understand the Aramaic underneath the text of the Greek, I will argue that the correct translation at the moment of Jesus' death is the Spirit. And you will find that translation in the Catholic translations of John. In the Anglican translation of John, you will find them going back to the word His Spirit. And there's an enormous difference between whether the text at this moment should say his spirit or the spirit. And I'm saying that knowing everything else that this third gospel is about, the correct word at that moment, the correct prefix, is the spirit. So it says, and it and is. that this entire passion of John is a glorious, triumphant, solemn passion of Easter. The sorrowing passions are what we read on Passion Sunday, five days previous. That's where we do the agony and the strife and, 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 and the burden. But the schizophrenia that our church is giving us is it's giving us the, the passion of joy where we do not count the cost of joy and love. And it does it on Good Friday that we beat our breasts and kneel and bow and feel how much we've hurt our God by what we've not done. Sorry, wrong passion for this day. Wow. That's really, really, I'm going to, that's going to make me think and reflect and <laughs> um, um, try and get my head around that for, for a while. That's, um, I've never heard that perspective before. Really interesting. I'm definitely going to have to explore that a bit more. Um, Thank you for that. Um, okay, um, I don't know how to follow that really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, a guy called BJ um, um, has uh, got this question. A bit more of a practical, but the next two questions, the last, the last two, uh, they're much more practical questions rather than um, Bible ones. Um, so BJ asked, well, he had a couple of questions. They're connected. Um, he said, um, what are your thoughts about the four gospel movements in relation to physical injury and healing? And are there any words or actions you'd recommend healthcare workers offer patients in each, cha in each of the paths? Great question again. And um, it's like, how do I take a huge volume and compress it down into a short answer? But, um, the, the path of healing, 
is the the parts of the path of healing are still very much the this this path of of all of all growth this is there is only one way that we grow develop and heal so depending on what a person's injury is and depending on a person's psychological attitude towards the injury mm. um, there are yes there there are lines and here i would go to each of the four passions and the signature line for me in the matthew passion for someone who is in a process of healing is Jesus meeting Judas at the moment of the arrest and Jesus saying to Judas, friend, do what you've come to do. And um, if each of us in some ways can say to our illness, to our injury in the early days, um, I'm not here to fight you. I'm here for you to do with me. I'm here for spirit to use this moment to lead me on a new journey. I love, I, I just heard this, this, this phrase from Rob Bell when we were together last week. Hmm. What might come from even this? What might come from even this? That's a beautiful line for the first path. And then on this, on the second path, um, the the uh, the feelings that Jesus speaks through Psalm twenty two from the cross, the beginning of Psalm twenty two, which I think we talked about when we talked about Mark, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Yeah, that that there is there there is no shame whatsoever in our utter feelings of aloneness and abandonment as we go on the healing journey. It's part of the healing. Again, remember, everything belongs. The question is not whether something belongs or doesn't belong. The question is, what's its rightful place in everything belonging? How much this with how much that? Um, someone who doesn't have deep moments of feeling abandoned and alone and perhaps racked with pain on the healing journey, it's not true. It's not human. It's not true. Those feelings, those experiences must be part of the journey. They're, they're not obstacles to be overcome. There are experiences for us to gently lean into. And I, I always use the example of, <clears throat> I, in, in the past, I had been a hospital chaplain, and I sat with people at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when every breath for them feels like a knife in the gut. And we were taught to gently invite them to try to Breathe with the pain or breathe into the pain. And mm -hmm. it's almost like a miracle. 
that the pain lessens. doesn't go away, but it lessens when we learn how to not hold ourselves rigid from it. So that, that's the second path. The, the third path, um, the third path is this incredible moment that usually comes to us by surprise deep in the midst of the painful agony, the abandonment, the despair. But if we stay on the journey, something arrives. And that something that arrives doesn't usually change our outer circumstances, but it says, I can do this. By the power of grace or spirit, but whatever your name is, I can do this. And I'm not going to count the cost anymore. There's something in this that I know is bringing me a new gift, a new way to be with myself and others. I can do this. And I'm grateful. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. And... (sighs) Again, Jesus in John's passion, which we've not been allowed to really see for what it is, carries the cross himself. Nobody carries the cross for Jesus. Jesus puts himself on the cross. Jesus says, nobody's taken my life from me. I lay my life down freely. And from this place, Jesus breathes spirit into the world. And from this place of deep injury as we heal, all of us will find small and large messages about what we can do with our life so that by that same power, we too can breathe spirit into the world. Mm. Wow, that's true. That's so true. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we've got to go do the work. Yeah. And... And what I love about Luke is that Luke, Luke, the, the text of the fourth path, keeps bringing us back to right now. And don't look down the road. Don't look for destinations. Don't set final goals because you're going to become discouraged or overwhelmed or bitter or resentful. Stay with what you can do right now, today. Stay with what you can do right now, today. Nice. Nice. Perfect, I think. I think the perfect way to to end this hour, I think, you know, stay with what you can do today. I think, yeah, life is kind of, life is a journey. Life is a a process, in a sense. You know, it's a, too often we focus on the past or the future. Um, and it's not that we shouldn't acknowledge those spaces, but we can often lose, get so overwhelmed by them that we forget to be present here today. And we think we have to do everything when actually we can just do what we can do today. Um, and I think that's something we all need to hear. So thank you for that. And thank you for doing, for asking, answering all these questions. Um, it's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed it, as ever. I always enjoy talking to you. We always learn so much well, from you. You know, and I, I, uh, I guess the, the, 
the one thing that I want to gently come back to is is to say, in the mid nineteen seventies, I started um, studying the early church's Easter rituals, and I came to realize how we've taken what they've done into what we today call Holy Week, but it's not how it all got started. There's a phenomenal, deeper, wider practice of Easter from the early church, which is part of my work that's called Gateway to Oneness. And if you go on on my website, quadratus.com, and go to the store, um, you'll see the work there called Gateway to Oneness. And there's also um, podcasts and and, 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 a, and a short film where, where I talk about this. And it's uh, it, it really means a great deal to me hmm. that we recover Easter as a present moment response to resurrection. That you and I are resurrected right now in this moment and, and it has a beauty that it brings us and it has a responsibility that it brings us. And this was the early church's understanding. Resurrection in the early church was when you take a step into understanding and living as everything belongs because your heart is wider. And when your heart is wider, that's what the church named as resurrection. had nothing to do with physical resurrection or what happens after we take our last breath. It was a present moment experience of enlarging one's heart. Wow, I think we're going to have to do, I think we're going to have to do a whole podcast on that. For sure, right. I'm thinking I'm there. next next Holy next year Holy Week. I think we need to um, for Holy Week next year. I think we might we should uh, we should um, do if we do a podcast or or two on on this because I think I think um, I would really love to, to investigate this further, and I think a lot of other people would. So we'll we'll do that next year, um, and you'll be back. I'm sure, you'll, I'm, and we'll definitely have you back before then as well. Invitation accepted. Excellent. <laughs> there's always an open invitation to you alexander to come on my podcast um yeah so yeah if you want and thank you to all my my new friends in the uk and everyone who's listening that i haven't yet met uh, uh i i love rob bell's ending where he says you know grace to you friend today yeah i love that yeah thank you um yeah <laughs> so yeah we'll have Alexander back soon so um, keep listening and he'll be back again at some point for sure um, and that's all for this week and uh, take care everyone and we'll talk soon <laughs>